This is an update on episode 1, Deanie Peters, which had its first major break since 1981. This episode will not only cover the arrest of James Frisbee, but will include additional and clarifying information, mostly from the WZZM 13 Investigates Facebook page. I will be covering all of the original information again in this episode. The year is 1981. Ronald Reagan takes office, the first test tube baby is born, and MTV hits the airwaves. That's how long ago Deanie Peters disappeared. Deanie was a 14-year-old 8th grader attending her 6-year-old brother William's wrestling practice with her mom, Mary. Mary's good friend, Ariadine, saw Deanie coming down the stairs at about 4.45 p.m. as she arrived to pick up her son, Paul, who had ridden to the wrestling practice with the Peters family. Deanie waved to Ariadine and said she was going to the restroom and would be right back. That's where this 40-year-old mystery begins. The disappearance took place on February 5, 1981 at Forest Hills Central Middle School, which is in one of, if not the safest neighborhood in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I previously said elementary school, that was not accurate. Even today, people here let their kids wander on bikes throughout the suburb. It's a desirable area. The area is referred to in the news by many names. The general area of the city is called Forest Hills. Cascade is a primary street running through Forest Hills. The middle school is not far from Cascade. The day of the disappearance, campus was busy. One Facebook comment says they were there that day and whatever happened must have been quick with all the activity. There were about 75 people in total in the two-level gym. The upper level held the wrestling meet. Photos of the wrestling team cannot be found in the yearbooks because it was not a Forest Hills public school system event. Their wrestling program wasn't large enough, so children from any district were allowed to join. Matches were random rather than by school. The lower level of the gym had an aerobics class taking place. The high school, which shares a campus with the middle school, had a donkey basketball game about two hours after the disappearance, which I guess is where you actually dress up as donkeys and play basketball. There's no solid record of who participated in the game. Initially, when Dini did not return, not too much alarm was raised. It was thought she might have stopped to view another school event. The school was thoroughly searched. Police were called at 6.42 p.m. This would have been roughly when the donkey basketball game was beginning at the high school. Police, though, thought that Dini might have run away to go live with her father and four siblings in California, despite her leaving pretty much everything behind, including her savings. The lead detective assigned to the case, Ken Kleinhexel, had spent five years tracing runaway children. A classmate of Deanie's said back in 1981 that Deanie did spend the night at a friend's house after arguing with her parents on more than one occasion. After 24 hours without contact from Deanie, search efforts intensified. Volunteers scoured nearby areas. Searches were conducted by helicopter and horseback. Parents waiting in the parking lot said they did not see Deanie or anything out of the ordinary. 
Children from the school were interviewed in groups. Some children had not been aware anyone had disappeared until the following day. The community tied ribbons around trees and organized searches. After two weeks, no evidence had been found. A drawing of a possible suspect was made, but never released to the public. A woman on Facebook claims to have been at the aerobics class that day and says she saw Deanie and another girl walk across the gym heading to the girls' room. This may be the same person who told investigators under hypnosis that they saw Deanie at 5.10 p.m. walking inside the school with another girl who had dark shoulder-length hair. This girl has yet to be identified. Rumors about the school incinerator were dispelled. Deanie's stepfather John and the school custodian Arthur Diaz were ruled out as suspects. Arthur was approached by Mary and John at the school and offered his condolences. He said he told them the same thing he told investigators, that three high school-aged boys, one in a green and white Forest Hills Central letter jacket, banged on the locked doors of the school to be let in during the practice. Arthur did not recognize the boys as students and refused. Mary says she does not remember this conversation. Arthur passed away in 2013. A tip was received about a man standing in the doorway watching the aerobics class. Police found this man, who said he was waiting for his girlfriend, a part-time music teacher at the school. Police could not connect him to Dini. Witnesses disagree on if this was actually the man seen that night. One person on Facebook claims to have been at the aerobics class and not have seen any unusual man, suggesting he may have looked like he fit in. Two odd phone calls were received by friends of Dini's, three days apart. One was around 8.30 p.m. on a Wednesday to a close family friend. There was only a whimpering sound. When asked if it was Dini, the caller hung up. The second call was on February 28th to Guy. Guy was the nickname of Dini's boyfriend, Larry, who she mentioned in a letter to her dad. He was 17 at the time of dating Dini, but told the papers he was 15 to avoid looking bad. The call was long distance from a girl who called herself Beth. Guy wasn't home to take the call and his mother declined to accept the charges. A close friend of Deanie's also claims to have received several hang-up calls, primarily late at night. In 2008, the Kent County Metro Cold Case Team was formed thanks to efforts by Ariadine. Some people asked how Ariadine is connected to this case. She's the last person left in Grand Rapids to push the case forward. Deanie's family ultimately moved away from the area. Over 400 interviews were conducted, 7 states visited, and up to 15 possible burial sites were searched. These include a young Marines camp in Keene Township, an area in Montcalm County, an area near Whitneyville in 92nd Avenue, a shallow pond along Grand River Drive, and a mound of rocks. An age progression of Dini is available in our source material. 
Initially, it was believed no one saw Dini on her way to the restroom. However, a student may have said hello to her as she walked toward the bathroom. Dini may have also been seen walking near the back door of the school with another girl. Someone reportedly saw a girl matching Dini's description willingly get into a car in the middle school parking lot. The disappearance was reconstructed. Efforts were focused on James Frisbee, Kyle Fate, and Steve Osborne. All three men graduated from Caledonia High School. One woman claimed while canoeing in 1989, a man named Joe F. talked about how he and two others hit a girl named Deanie with their car in a school parking lot. They put her in the trunk and buried her along the flat river. The two other men are rumored to be Jeff F. of the same last name and Dean M. According to rumors, all three were friends of a man named Bruce Bunch. One person believes Jeff F. and someone named Greg P. were involved and mentions a long winding road that takes you to a property by a forest with a pond owned by one of the two men who traveled often for work in a truck. Jeff F. allegedly has a violent history and a history with law enforcement. Jeff was married to Margot. Margot's brother allegedly knew Deanie. This person also says that after Brent's interview with Mary, Mary could no longer find Deanie's horse collection from her bedroom. I'm not sure, but they may be referring to Brent Ashcroft, who covered Deanie's story with WZZM13. Joe F. told detectives in the early 90s that he heard Bruce Bunch talk about killing Deanie while drunk and crying at a kegger near the sod farms off Grand River Drive near Lowell, and that she was buried near the old one-room schoolhouse. This tip was investigated with no luck. Bunch may have been married to Joe F.'s relative Beth. Beth is the same name as the girl who called Guy Collect in the weeks after the disappearance. It's unknown if that's connected. Investigators were never able to rule Bunch out as a suspect. He was 17 and living in Lowell at the time. The common rumor is that Bunch saw Deanie and drove his car at her to scare her, hit a patch of ice, and accidentally ran her over and killed her. It's thought Deanie may have left the school to smoke a cigarette. Bunch reportedly confessed to the killing to somewhere between 20 and 30 people who reportedly did not believe him. His first wife called Bunch violent and abusive and said he would sometimes black out after drinking with no memory. She claims he once pushed her out of a moving vehicle and broke her ankle and another time threatened to run her off the road. In a phone interview, Bunch said he had a dream about Deanie after seeing her story on TV, but said he had never actually met her. He couldn't remember the details about the dream, only that he told friends about it, and it somehow snowballed into how he had killed Deanie, maybe hit her with his car or truck, and buried her. A Facebook comment claims Bunch had to leave to Somerset after being harassed by police and possibly refused to come back even for a family funeral. Here's a quote from Bunch. 
back when he owned a repair shop. Quote, when I was a kid, I used to have this mental telepathy thing. I could tell things, like when a bird comes into your house and tells you someone's going to die. Everybody just keeps carrying it different ways. End quote. I looked up the bird comment, and a bird flying into a closed window is considered to be a bad omen, typically that someone will die. I believe Bunch was saying he had a sense for bad omens. Bunch died of a heart attack in 2008 before being questioned by the cold case team. I previously said Bunch had never been interviewed in regards to Dini. That was not accurate. Ken Kleinhaxel received a tip about Bunch a few weeks after the disappearance and interviewed him two or three months after. Bunch said he had nothing to do with it and they had nothing to hold him. It was discovered that two days before her disappearance, Deanie had an altercation with at least two other girls over a boy, possibly Bruce Bunch, where they told her to stay away from him. It may or may not have been physical. Those involved were identified and interviewed by police. In 2008, Ken was subpoenaed for the return of Deanie's diary. After retirement, Ken had focused his efforts on solving Deanie's case along with Ariadine. He says the diary was returned to Mary, but Mary doesn't recall receiving it. Ken also says he read the diary very closely and there was nothing useful in it. However, that comment was made before Ken learned of the confrontation Deanie had in the days before her death. Ken alleged that several witnesses claimed they gave statements and that information was never passed on to him. Detectives repeatedly took statements but did not file reports. Sergeant Chet Bush says he was unable to track all potential leads in Deanie's case. This includes being unable to fly to Arizona to interview Deanie's mother and stepfather, and being unable to interview the school custodian, Arthur Diaz. However, the press found Arthur living about a mile from the sheriff's department, where he had lived for the past 15 years. Arthur believed the police targeted him for being Hispanic. He was locked in a cell overnight and made to testify in front of a grand jury about a month after the disappearance. His only criminal record at the time was for drinking and driving. He stated he was cleaning a school office the night of the disappearance and never saw Dini. Arthur said he was never asked to give a description or look at mugshots regarding the three boys he refused to let in the building. Sergeant Chet Bush also claimed to have faced roadblocks in the investigation of the 1993 murder of millionaire Robert Freiling. There is essentially nothing online about the case. I had to reach out to the local library to get details. Robert Freiling was the well-connected and influential owner of Freiling Construction in the 90s. His stepdaughter Maria married Doug DeVos, son of Amway's Rich DeVos Sr. Robert had a reputation as a loving husband and family man when he was suddenly murdered in his 6,400-square-foot home. 
The Freiling case went unsolved for eight years until Pietro Terrell and Christine Van Meter were arrested in 2001 with the help of a retired FBI agent who was reportedly paid the equivalent of $54,000 per year as a cold case investigator. Officials said in 2001 that the same investigator would be looking into Dini's case. It came out that the pimp of a prostitute Freiling frequented decided to rob the millionaire client. Rumors say detectives solved the high-profile case right away back in the 90s, but intentionally left it publicly unsolved to prevent embarrassment to the influential family. Detective Jack Christensen was quoted in 1995 as saying, quote, After two years, nothing has surfaced to show anybody was mad at him, end quote. However, in Pietro's 2004 appeal, the state of Michigan refers to interviews with Christine from 1993 about their plan to rob the home as well as statements that seem to directly implicate they were involved in the murder. A commenter on Facebook claims a woman connected with her to say she believed her father was involved in the disappearance of Dini. They said the man was in the construction business and spent a lot of time at a hotel and bar in the 28th and East Paris area, possibly called the Spinnaker. His name may have been Rob. They say this tip was given to Silent Observer. The Spinnaker is a bar at the Hilton Hotel at 28th and Patterson, which is not too far from the Freiling Mansion near the corner of Kraft and Burton. However, it's unclear if this person was referring to Freiling. The cold case team was disbanded in 2016. They believed there were several people living in West Michigan who knew what happened but were unwilling to cooperate. They strongly believed a woman living in the Cascade area had knowledge of the disappearance. There were rumors the cold case team had more information about what happened that could not be released to the public. According to a Facebook comment, a Freedom of Information Act request could not be made because the case is still open. What you're about to hear next is all speculation I found on the WZZM13 Investigates Facebook page for Dini. It's alleged that four high school girls were involved in the altercation with Dini at the middle school. Sue, Lori M, Lori L, and Debbie D, who is Guy's sister. Sue still lives in the area. She failed a lie detector test. Some rumors say she was in the car when Bunch ran over Dini. Sue was not Bunch's girlfriend at the time, a girl named Patty was. Sue has an aunt, Sandy, who knows Naomi Bunch, Bruce's mother. Sue's husband is the nephew of Detective Jack Christensen. Sue allegedly called Jack uncle growing up. Ken claimed that in 1981, Detectives Jack Christensen, Chet Bush, and Jim Porter searched a pond off Grand River Drive without him and never filed a report for the search. Ken said Jack wanted to solve the case by himself without Ken's help. Kirby is Bruce Bunch's cousin and went to church with Sue and Sandy. She says Bunch was not involved. 
he had no motive and detectives tracked him for years to no avail. It's a small town and there are going to be connections between people. Bunch never owned any trucks as suspected by some, and the car he owned at the time was never in any accidents. He got rid of the car because a cousin used it in a B&E. Kirby says Bruce did not have a crush on Sue. Kirby posted on Facebook that Sue lives on the same property she grew up in, which is near all her relatives, and says Sue, Deb, and the Lorries are still close friends. Below that post is a picture of some snow and sticks, which says it's the golf course down from Snow Road and says, quote, I know what it is, and so do you, end quote. This is likely the snow avenue that was searched in 2020 by Ken, the Michigan Paranormal Alliance, and Michigan SAR with canine handlers. They saw no change in the dogs. Kirby goes on to say the picture is a 3 by 5 foot, perfectly rectangular hole that has been untouched for 33 years and says this was a party spot back in the day. They continue to say that Dini is of course not there, so I don't know what Kirby believes the spot to be. Bunch and Guy worked together at Metric Manufacturing in Lowell. This was confirmed by Greg Thomas, the VP of Metric, according to Kirby. Bunch and Guy were not friends, and Greg remembered Bunch being there in 82 or 83 before marrying Beth, but was unsure about 1981. It's alleged that Thomas and Guy Dalk were both upper management and close friends. Kirby claims Thomas may have protected Guy by not mentioning in 1981 that Guy and Bunch worked together, and by claiming to not have employment records from 1981. It's also possible that Guy had a previous relationship with one of the girls from the altercation. One Facebook commenter, Facebook Joe, has a few bold claims. Someone told him he was with Bunch while moving the body. He says the local police are involved and corrupt. A human skull was found in the Detroit River. Facebook Joe wondered if it could be Dini. They go on to suspect the Detroit case is being kept quiet. Facebook Joe continues to say that a man named Ken H. changed his name. He was the guy with the beagle in the photo on the front of the Grand Rapids Press. Apparently, Ken H. was friends with Bunch and is the one who threw the skull into the Detroit River. A man named Eric M. is also involved. Joe claims to run, quote, the Knights page, end quote, and has access to information about Ken. Facebook Joe also accuses Deanie's sister of lying about random bits of her past, so he may be a terrible source of information. Here are some miscellaneous details and theories about Deanie's case. There are reportedly tunnels under one wing of Central Middle School for heating access. The woman claiming to have seen Dini with another girl mentioned on Facebook that Dini was particularly noticeable because she was pretty. Arthur Diaz made a similar comment as well as several of Dini's classmates. A woman named Jennifer asked on Facebook if anyone could recall a short box sidestep brown truck on the night of the disappearance but there were no responses. Another person on Facebook mentions Donnie K as a name possibly involved. 
A Facebook thread was deleted over comments that Dini may have flirted with construction workers and bummed cigarettes from them. There was some construction going on at the school at the time. One story is that Dini ended up at a party on Cascade Road. From there, one girl and three men took Dini away, potentially to the old schoolhouse, and killed her there. I'm not sure this adds up, because the night Dini disappeared, she was supposed to babysit for the Hart family. She had also babysat in the past for Ariadine. Killer Edward Zakruski, called Zach, was rumored to be romantically involved with Dini since he attended the same school. This is unlikely, as he did not live in Michigan at the time. Serial killer Ralph Andrews is not believed to be involved. Here are some potential Jane Doe's. Vider Jane Doe was white between ages 12 and 20, between 4 foot 6 and 5 foot 6. She was found in Vider, Texas in 1984, believed to be around a year after her death in 1983. Sketches of Vider look similar to Dini. Jane Doe 1985 from missingkids.org was found in Jellicoe, Tennessee in 1985. She is estimated to be between 10 and 14 years old and believed to have passed away between 1981 and 1984. She had several silver fillings. Jellicoe is a straight shot down I-75 from Grand Rapids, and again the sketches look similar to Dini. I-96 Jane Doe was identified and is not Dini. A man on Facebook named Tyler posted information he claims came from a man named Bob P. Bob worked with James Frisbee at Frisbee Sign Co. and heard James tell Kyle Fate not to worry about taking a lie detector test, that she passed hers by thinking of something else. A jealous girl was involved, and a woman named Kathy said she spent time with Kyle and his mother on Kettle Lake back in the day and that Kyle considered Deanie his girlfriend. Bob says he asked Kyle directly about Deanie in the early 2000s, and with a trembling voice he said, I'm not the one that hurt that girl, Bob. The same Bob P. left a comment asking to put pressure on James Frisbee. He also says he thinks James Frisbee murdered Kyle Fate. Emily Fate commented that she was there when her father Kyle died, and says the death was an accidental overdose. She says she never heard the name Bruce Bunch from her father and defended her father, saying he would never hurt a soul and had never even hunted or fished. On July 2, 2021, 40 years after Deanie Peters disappeared, James Frisbee was arrested for perjury in connection to her case. This is the first arrest investigators have made. There is no evidence connecting Frisbee to the disappearance, however the assistant prosecutor is using investigative subpoenas to force witnesses to testify. Frisbee reportedly changed his story about Steve Osborne, who he had known since childhood. Frisbee testified that he never thought Osborne had killed Deanie. However, he told detectives back in 2008 there were rumors about Osborne strangling and raping women. Frisbee told detectives, quote, Steve might have been the one who did it, end quote. Osborne denied these claims. Frisbee also denied telling anyone about the potential involvement of Kyle Fate. Fate worked off and on at Frisbee's sign shop in Caledonia. 
Fate was Deanie's boyfriend at one time, and according to his ex-wife, he had a photo with a detailed love letter written on the back and signed by Deanie. Susan Timmer, Fate's girlfriend from about 1994 to 2004, told the court that Frisbee called her the day Fate died in 2008 and told her, quote, Yeah, I think he lived his life with drugs and alcohol because he felt guilty about killing Deanie Peters, end quote. Frisbee's attorney argued that Frisbee simply did not remember things clearly and did not knowingly lie. The judge said evidence showed Frisbee had a lengthy pattern of false statements to investigators. Frisbee's phone showed six calls and 201 texts between Frisbee and Osborne from May 24, 2001 to June 24, 2001. One call was one day before Frisbee's testimony and lasted eight minutes. Another call on June 1st was shortly after Frisbee learned investigators were again interviewing witnesses in the case. That call lasted just over an hour and had been deleted from Steve Osborne's phone and did not appear on Frisbee's phone at all. During a call when Frisbee was in jail, his son told him, Steve ratted you out. Frisbee responded with, How do you know? Court documents also allege that Frisbee told other witnesses not to bring their cell phones when they appeared under subpoenas. Frisbee told investigators in 2002 that he was told by a friend that two other men were in a car in 1981 when Deanie Peters ran out from between parked cars and they struck and killed her and that she was buried in a shallow grave with her head toward the river. The person maintaining the WZZM 13 Investigates Facebook page retired on December 23, 2021. It's unclear if the page will be maintained. WZZM interviewed several key people in the case, including Ken, Ariadine, Mary, and Robert Alexander, who was the last known person to speak to Deanie on her way to the bathroom. However, the webpage hosting these interviews has been taken down. Several of my sources from Article 1 were also removed. I tried contacting the station to see if they were still available, but received no response. Investigation Discovery was reportedly going to pick up Deanie's case, but it was dropped when the producers changed. John Walsh picked up Deanie as a February missing child. Deanie is remembered as being bubbly and encouraging. Although she wanted to be a model, Mary believed Deanie would have become a veterinarian. Deanie had a short article published about her 8th grade trip to camp. She says of her peers, quote, They learned the importance of simply trying, trusting their friends, and overcoming their fears. End quote. Ken Kleinhexel reportedly kept Deanie's photo in his wallet until he passed away. Students at Forest Hill Central still write papers about Deanie. William said of his sister's unknown killer, quote, I think it's almost worse than prison because they've had to live with it their whole lives, end quote. Deanie was declared legally dead in 1991. Her father, Dwayne, passed away in 2017. Mary and John have moved to Arizona, where they have still kept a bedroom for Deanie, recreated exactly the way she left it. They desperately want to lay Deanie to rest. The investigation is still open and active as of 2021. 
The statute of limitations has expired on all charges except murder. There is a $25,000 cash reward for any credible information about what happened or Dini's remains. You can contact Crime Stoppers to remain completely anonymous at 1-800-SPEAK-UP or the Kent County Sheriff's Department at 616-632-6100. This podcast was written and produced by me, Nikki, music by Juan Sanchez. Mm-hmm.